This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. Today on the program, we have the continuation of our last podcast, in which we listened to the full version of Madeline Wolf's story. Afterwards is an interview with Madeline and her curator, Nick Ward. This is a look at how we develop stories in curation, not only from a technical standpoint, but how a curator helps the storyteller illuminate the nooks and crannies of their experiences to find a complete emotional arc. You may refer to our previous podcast to hear the short version of this story. For now, we'll hear the studio version of the full length. Second Story presents Madeline Wolf. It all started when, on a walk around our little cul-de-sac neighborhood set between two just-sprouting Indiana cornfields, my best friend Jen turned to me and said, So, John told Kyle that when you, like, leaned over the lab table to grab the quiz in science class today, he, like, saw down your shirt and you weren't wearing a bra. Just, like, thought you'd want to know. This was middle school, so you can imagine my first thought. Boys were talking about me? But my second response was, when I bend over, you can see down my shirt? It had been a year since we had moved to this town, but I still felt like the new kid. A year younger than my classmates, the only Jew in school, and therefore the only person to have had had a kid request to sit somewhere other than behind me because he couldn't see past my frizzy hair. So it was nice to have, finally have a friend who was looking out for me. I had just finished a long, several week search, and Jen was also conveniently located in my middle of nowhere neighborhood. Jen had been wearing a bra since like forever, and she was pretty popular. Usually I was able to fly under the radar of such scrutiny because I was Jen's friend. She had straight, silky blonde hair, clear blue eyes, and everyone wanted to be around her. I was going through an intense, angular growth spurt, had thick glasses, and got overwhelmed in big groups. She lived a few doors down, and when we first became friends, she invited me over to, well, at that point, I think I was still calling it play, and she would have called it hangout. As we entered her sunflower-themed bedroom, I asked her where all her dolls and Barbies were. She sort of half laughed and said they were all in boxes in the spare room. I felt embarrassed as I thought about the piles of little outfits and tiny furniture my sister and I had scattered around our bedrooms at home. Want to paint nails and do makeovers? She dumped out a basket of brightly colored polishes onto the nubby carpet. But back to the sidewalk, observing this news of my science class exposure, I felt heat spread across my cheeks. While I knew I was flat, I did not know this was something that could be made evident to others, especially boys. When I got home, I bent in front of the full-length mirror in my bedroom. My baggy Spice Girls t-shirt ballooned, making me look round and barrel-shaped. I peered in into the mirror. Down the shirt's neck opening, you could see all the way to my belly button. I hurried downstairs to the kitchen where my mom was prepping dinner. Mom, I think I need a bra. She burst out laughing. You don't need a bra. She looked up from chopping a red pepper to see that from the expression on my face, this was more serious than she had originally thought. She put down the knife. Do you need a bra? We moved to the kitchen table, sat, and each reached into the bowl of in-shell peanuts, cracking them and not looking at one another. I couldn't tell her what happened with Jen. I'm really close with my mom, but close can mean a lot of things. For us, nowadays, it means we talk a lot. When I say this, people will ask, like what, once a week? More. Like once a day? More. Like, I talked to her on the way <clears throat> on my way to this show and will most likely call her again on my way home. 
When we talk, it is mostly about the day-to-day -day happenings in our lives and how we feel about them. Something's serious, but there are certain lines we typically don't cross. During my preteen and teen years, it was puberty and becoming a woman stuff. We'd had the, you can tell me anything, conversation, but anything had some holes for both of us. So when I brought up bras, I knew my mom wasn't going to go for it because one, I had no breasts, two, I was still a kid, three, a whole host of other growing up things would be coming down the pike that we would be forced to confront. My mom's question lingered, do you need a bra? The word need meant different things to us. She was asking if I physically needed a bra, and in my head I was answering, yes, I metaphorically need a bra so I can just join this puberty race already. The sun was setting and I knew she had to get back to making dinner. No, I guess I don't really need one. I tossed my peanut shells in the bowl before scurrying out of the kitchen. When I went to school through the next month, all I could see as I maneuvered the halls of sixth grade were breasts and the bras that held them. How about an undershirt, my mom asked. She was folding one of her own from a basket of laundry as I glumly ate my breakfast. I stifled a grimace and focused on my toast. No, the girls at school were not bragging about their new undershirts. This would not do. So I started doing some of my own research on what I would need when my time, if ever, came. An aunt had bought me this book called The Care and Keeping of You by American Girl. In it, they describe all the different ways you, a young teen, can prepare for your new self. In my room alone at night, I pored over this book. The page I studied most had this drawing of a bunch of girls standing in a series of changing rooms, each wearing a different kind of bra. One busty gal wore a bra like a Viking princess, the underwire. Another girl had her mom helping her clasp a soft cup bra, and a third held her soccer ball as she inspected her new sports bra. So many choices, all of them requiring breasts. If I could not speed up biology, I would speed up my preparation. How does one prepare for a new self? You train. When I wanted to learn to dive, I squat dove off the side of the pool about a million times before trying the real deal. When my husband and I were planning our first backpacking trip, I tromped down Dearborn in my new hiking boots every day to break those suckers in. In bed with the care and keeping of you, I noticed a sketch at the edge of the page. It was a curly-headed girl with a training bra. I wasn't sure how long I would need to train, but it seemed like the girls in the locker room at school did not have to train long before they earned a real bra. And no one could tell the difference between a training bra and a real one under your shirt, except for not having boobs. The strap bumps alone felt like a step in the right direction. One warm day, about a month later, I came home from school, dropped my backpack by the door, and headed to the kitchen for a snack. There I found my mom waiting for me at the kitchen table with a Target bag in her lap. Hi, sweetie, she smiled cautiously. What you got, I asked. She looked a bit uncomfortable, a little sympathetic. I got you some things. She sighed and looked over at me. Her eyes said, I'm doing my best here. I'm doing a mom thing I have never done before. She pulled out three small clear plastic hangers, all adorned with very white, semi-delicate, semi-industrial training bras. I looked at the bras, I looked at my mom, I looked at my very, very flat chest. How did she know? Was she buying these for me because she could somehow foresee that breasts would be around the corner? Why didn't she take me shopping with her? In the care and keeping of you, there's no cartoon of a mom and daughter at home peering into a Target bag. 
These girls were out there at the store alone, taking care of business. Maybe this confirmed that in some ways I was still a kid. My mom would still shop for me. Maybe she was protecting me from all the growing up I would still have to do in my own time, regardless of whether or not I was ready. As the training bras dangled before us, I got the giggles. They hung there a little angelically in the afternoon light, and I saw them for what they were, something that I had associated with what it would take for me to become normal. And for this reason, I knew they weren't something I should want. But I was also almost 13, and I could not fight this any longer. I gently took the training bras from her and headed for the bathroom. The first two were a bust. One made me look like I had two saggy tea bags attached to my chest, and the second had so many little bows, I looked kind of like a present. The third, though, was sort of satiny. It had an ever so slight layer of padding. Perhaps this bra was meant to train me on what boobs would look like. When I put my shirt on over it, I bet no one would really notice, but I could. I felt older, and I felt like I could take on the world in this thing. You know, like how sometimes just putting on a little perfume can make you feel more like a grown-up, or a 4 p.m. piece of chocolate can get you to 5 p.m., or how a long shower can revive you from the dead. I slid the straps to the edges of my shoulders. This felt like a way I could handle the rest of life. So, my mom called from the kitchen. She was keeping a safe distance from the bathroom, giving me space as she has always done, but also very curious about what I'm up to, as she always is. I was already imagining the super casual way I would mention to Jen at the bus stop the next day that I'm no longer braless, and I just, like, thought she'd want to know. As I came out of the bathroom and handed back the first two training bras to my mom, poorly reassembled on those little tiny hangers. These two don't work. This one does. Thanks, Mom. This is exactly what I needed. Now we go to an interview with Madeline and her curator, Nick Ward. Let's situate ourselves in the second story process. A storyteller first brings their text to the curator, who helps flesh out the story on the page. After this process, a director jumps on board to work on the performance. And finally, a sound designer adds sound cues to put the frosting on the cake. To be clear, there are two Nicks in the room during this interview, me and the curator, Nick Ward. Madeline, did you have much uh, storytelling experience before this one? Uh, no. So I, I've been a company member with Second Story for several years now, um, but hadn't told a story until um, a little over a year ago. And so I told a story uh, for a synagogue fundraiser That's right. that That's we right. did, uh, which was super fun. With the violinist, right? Um, well, no, it was with... Um, Breaks on the Highway? Yeah. 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 And so banjo and guitar. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and that was really fun. And I, I told a story about um, going to Jewish sleepaway camp for, for the first time, uh, coming from a small town where I was the only Jew. Um, and then this this training bra story I told at the Second Story fundraiser mm-hmm. in a sh- very short version and then wrote a longer version for this. So this is only my second story. Second, second, story. second story. Yes. Second, 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 second story. Great. Um, so how did you go about, I noticed there was a lot of pieces from the shorter version. A lot of the turns, a lot of the jokes you reuse, you use the same inflection in a lot of them. Um, how did it t- talk about how some of those grew uh, out from the seedlings of the, uh, yeah. the original? Yeah, I think, 
looking back on the two pieces, they I think they feel very similar and um you know, I did I did keep a lot of the stuff that I liked in the first one, a lot of like the big key parts. But I think that uh, what I really enjoyed was spending more time trying to develop the relationship, my mom's, my mom and my relationship in the story, which was something sure. that Nick and I talked about a lot um, when when we worked on it together, because uh, that was really when I had done the initial version, I had actually mentioned that I wanted to expand it later because I wanted the story to kind of be a love letter to my mom mm -hmm. and just how relationships between kids and parents can be all kinds of things, but they can be loving even though they're not, you know, the choices that our parents make aren't necessarily what we would have wanted, Sure. but they come oftentimes, I think, can come from a place of love, even if we don't understand why they yeah. did things. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk did. about the holes in your in yeah. the longer version. That's not in the shorter one. Like, uh, I think everybody has that relationship with their folks. Like, we're really close on some stuff, but we're not. We're just not going to talk about a bunch of other things, and that's for both of our emotional safety. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Nick, as the uh, curator. What, uh, how, how did you, how did you help Madeline kind of gr grow these seedlings of the short, the short one to the long one? Well, I think that, first of all, I think that my job is to ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and that's with any show that I curate. It's all about asking questions around the things that really stand out to me. So is that more trying to lead people to water rather than tell them what to do? That kind of concept? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, particularly in the beginning of the process, um, never want to try my best not to sure. prescribe <laughs> my own political, social, personal mm -hmm. opinions onto anything. Um, I really sure. want to try to get each storyteller to the place where they feel like their story is the expression that they want. Sure. And so one of the things that we talked about, as Madeline said, was that she really wanted this piece to be a love letter to her mother um, and listening to it for the first time it just felt like there was there could be so much more there I felt in the shorter version like we were missing a little bit the the key to that relationship that made it different than all other um, mother-daughter relationships or child-parent relationships and so it was kind of figuring out how do we tell something that is both unique to you and also feels universal. It felt universal, and I think partially that's time. You know, f five minutes is not a long time to really yeah. dig in. Um, and so it was really the question of like, cool, so let's, let's talk more about this relationship. What, ma what, makes it so, um, what makes it so vibrant and so unique? Yeah, and I think that's also the, that's where it gets harder is it's, it in some ways was it was hard to keep it so short for the first version but it was also easier to not talk about those things because i i really struggle with making sure that all parties involved in a story are okay with what's happening mm -hmm. um you know like trying to make sure that i'm not uh it, it's really hard to not have your own opinion about like your own perspective in a story about what happened and i think sometimes i try to do that because i don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and I worried at first that my mom would maybe feel bad that I felt a certain way about this circumstance. Um, but what specifically? 
Well, just that I was saying that I felt like I couldn't tell her stuff or that I, uh. I was like sad that she didn't include me in like this part of my upbringing that she like, she didn't like go about it the way that I wanted her to, um, that I would have wanted her to. And, you know, I drew my own conclusions about why she did that. But, um, and I think I even still like, I just kind of lightly touched on that uh, struggle. And, but it was, it was really interesting because I ended up, you know, she read the, she read the final draft. Mm -hmm. She was at the first, the first telling of the short version. And we talked a lot uh, in between the first and second about the story. And she actually, I asked her, you know, what, like what this time of life was like for her. Yeah, I bet that informed the longer version well, huh? Well, I kind of, I talked to her about it after I had already written it. Uh -huh. And she told me that when she was, you know, around this age, her mother, my grandmother, uh, took her to Marshall Fields and made her go through the bra aisle with her and pick out training bras and stood outside the door. And my mom said it was Ugh. the most awful, embarrassing thing, that she hated it so much and she felt so awful about it and she, she didn't want to do that to me. Which is funny because that's exactly <laughs> the thing that you kind of wanted. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I wanted. But then it, it pulled up this other conversation actually with Amanda, the artistic director, our artistic director, um, that she, you know, had said that she um, had been having a conversation with someone that said that they felt like the the golden rule had sort of had sort of screwed us over. That you know the idea like do unto others as you would have done unto you when really it should maybe be like, do unto others as you think they would want done yeah, to them. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, she, I mean, she, my mom did the golden rule. She did what she thought, uh -huh. you know, she would have wanted done for her, which was not what I would have wanted, yeah. but, but in a lot of cases, that's, that's all we can come. Yeah. That's, that's all, all we, we know, from. you know, like we don't want to repeat the same mistakes or the same, the same experiences necessarily. Um, Nick, you had mentioned that you two were looking for what was particularly unique about uh, Madeline, your relationship with your mom. Either of you, maybe both of you, maybe could talk about what that is. Well, I certainly do not talk to either of my parents every day. <laughs> um, I know folks who do, of course. Um, but I think that when I think about my own relationship with my mom or even my dad, um, there's a little bit of a, a distance. Um, and so it was interesting to hear that there's actually so much closeness between you and your mom. And yet there is actually something that is really distant uh, when you kind of get down to the core of things. And so for me, that felt like a really unique opportunity to, um, or, or a unique relationship to explore, which was figuring out, obviously, all of the stories that we tell uh, are our stories, and they're from our perspective. And so the thing that makes them unique is how we react to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually even curious now, and I probably should have asked this question, when we were curating, but I'm actually really curious now as to what your mom thought of your relationship with this new, with your new friends. Yeah, she, I think at the time, well, so she didn't know about the thing that happened with Jen. Um, mm. So she, and Jen actually eventually dropped me, like just totally dropped our friendship. Um, and so I think, 
at the time, my mom was just so, I think, grateful that I was like meeting people and like making friends. And then later, you know, she holds a grudge just like the rest of the, the line of women in my family. And so, you know, I think was really, um, you know, held that, held that a lot as, as did I for a long time, you know, um, parents are good for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're always, <laughs> they're in your corner, man. They'll they're in your corner. You even when it's totally logical, yeah, right? yeah. After a certain even point, when you're sometimes, cool with it. even when you're yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, mom, it's okay. We can let this one go now. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, we can let it yeah. go now. Um, so yeah, she's totally always been in my corner. And so when there were people that I was excited about, she, you know, um, she was totally with me. Mm-hmm for that. Um, but you know, even talking about it now, I think there was a long period where she felt like she felt bad about, cause you know, we had done this move and I was, I was much younger than my classmates. And so she saw that I had to kind of like catch up. Um, even though maybe I wasn't like at a place where I was ready to catch up, but I saw that this was the culture and I needed to, yeah, socially, just like, well, socially, biologically, like all of it, I was just like younger. I was just like a younger kid. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, she felt like as a parent that maybe they'd made a mistake, like moving and moving me to a new school. Mm. But now, you know, we talk about it and she's like, that was a really crazy time. Like, I think she's able to kind of have a little distance from it um, and has seen how just like my sister and I like have a lot of character, (laughs) you know, like it was like a huge growing experience for for Mm -hmm. both of us. And so I think she sees it as a good thing now. I think, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think she's able to look at it more as like a time of our lives instead of like this thing that, you know, changed everything. And yeah. Moving can be hard and good for you later, I suppose, as you're saying, because you have to learn to be charismatic (laughs) or you're going to be really socially alienated. Maybe that doesn't pay off until way later too. I've seen that happen for sure. So not having told many stories anywhere or with second story, kind of working with them in a different capacity. Um, maybe you could talk about some of the pressures you felt, your first experiences going through curation and, and direction more, more specific, probably curation today, since we have your curator right here. Um, yeah. Because with, with this interview, I guess we really want to go into like the making of the sausage stuff, like talk about the process, like the listeners don't know what it's like being in a curation meeting, even though all of us sitting here do. Um, maybe maybe you could talk about you like subjectively going into that, not, sure. not being totally experienced. Yeah, I think um, first of all, th- for me at least, there's it feels it feels very much like stepping back in time when you when once you choose what you're going to write about Mm -hmm. i think i felt it was sort of exhausting at times like spoke like thinking so much about that time of life when i think i've spent a lot of time kind of distancing myself from that but it's also a huge part of what like shaped me and turned me into the person that i am so you know and i think the curation process just made that even deeper and and like Nick said, just being able, having someone that's asking you and coming, you know, asking you really good questions and coming from just a place of curiosity um, and, and not judgment, but just genuinely wanting to know more about what that experience was like for you mm-hmm. um, made 
made the experience feel like a very artistic experience and not just like, oh, you know, this part is exciting, it could be more exciting, you know, or just let's make this more dramatic. It was like, what, you know, what, I want to hear more about your mom or I want, like, tell me more about when this particular thing happened, what was happening around you or what were these people like that you were with, you know, and things that when it's coming from your own perspective, there's a lot of things you assume and maybe don't get on the page. And so mm -hmm. it's really helpful to have someone that's asking those things. And, you know, I, I voiced to Nick that I was a little nervous just about ha not having told many stories. And uh -huh. so not being sure if like what I was writing was good or, or, or like that it was a good story. I don't think that stops after you get more experience. <laughs> well, but, but also all. just, you know, being nope. like a straight, like a straight white girl from, you know, a middle-class family. I think sometimes you, I, I feel like, well, there are so many more, like so many other stories that I've heard that have so much merit to me. And so, you know, writing a story about training bras uh, while fun, uh, you know, it's, there, there is some meat and, and there are things going on that I, I feel proud of, but I also am very thoughtful of, of that. Um, you know, making sure that this is something that I feel like people should hear. So, um, it, I think that's also part of the curation process is having someone talk you through why you're writing what you're writing. Nick helped you get to the emotional core. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what we strive to do is not just actually have a one-on-one -on -one experience, mm -hmm. right? Like part of what we strive to do is surround in a way, um, maybe surround is a bad word, but, but build a collaborative experience amongst a variety of people, mm -hmm. right? That, in that incorporates uh, all of the storytellers in the process, the curator, the performance director, the sound designer, um, even the producer, the audience, the other company members of Second Story, the, the ideal for us at all times is that it's less about one person working on their individual story inside a vacuum and more about how the stories all fit together and are they artistically supported by the entire organization as best as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, especially the people in the room who are, who are directing and sound designing and curating and, and writing as well along yeah. with you. Yeah, because we are, it, I mean, super, super thoughtful about that. Mm -hmm. I actually had a moment, so for the Pub 626 shows, I was out on Saturday and Julie Ganey subbed in for me and her story it was about um, getting so many parking tickets as a high schooler that she gets her license revoked. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, but she she helped us um, get set up on Friday night, and she saw my, my story on the mic stand, and she just read through the first few lines, and she thought, oh, no, we can't have two stories about young white girls <laughs> like <laughs> living no, in rural towns. <laughs> and then she was like, oh, wait, I'm... I'm here on Saturday and Madeline's not. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there won't be two of those oh, stories in a row. Um, so that, you know, we're, I think I really appreciate that thoughtfulness of, you know, looking around at the other tellers that are there and seeing a variety of experiences. Yeah. I think that blends itself well to, well, not only the golden rule we were talking about earlier of thinking about everyone's desires, but also the permeability of Second Story. The, you know, we're not in collaboration with only uh, each other in the in the company or with the storytellers we work with, but uh, we really try to do think think hard about the experience of the 
the audience members. And, and also, we think about not just that individual show, but shows stretching back and forward through time and thinking about building larger holistic seasons um, and really thinking about trying to capture as many different kinds of stories as possible. And mm -hmm. I want to say one thing, actually, Madeline, that occurred to me, um, which is that perhaps you are uh, less experienced as a storyteller, but you have seen hundreds of stories. So as a member of the organization and an audience member um, and a member of our organizational structure and somebody who thinks about the possibilities of second story artistically all of the time, um, you actually are have a wealth of knowledge and experience that comes to bear too when you're writing. Well, thanks. Oh, yeah. Thanks. There's no better way to become a better writer than reading a bunch of books, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick, did you have some questions that you wrote down? I thought I thought you might have brought know. some. Yeah. <laughs> If there are any you want to ask. Can I put my mic down just for a second? Yeah. yeah do you Polina is pulling this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, let's take a At this point, Madeline's dog, Polina, made an appearance only to rip up the couch. And we're back. So I want to know, you have mentioned a number of times uh, that you really wanted this story to be a love letter to your mom. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that it was successful in that regard? And... Is there anything that you felt like maybe left on the cutting room floor, as it were, or in the, in the memory that you sort of unlocked? Good question. Or could unlock in a sort of future iteration? Yeah, I think I realized that that was just too much to do in one piece. I think that I, I, think I accomplished something that I was really, um, like that I didn't accomplish in the first version. Um, which was just kind of getting into the subtleties of our relationship and doing it in a way that I felt m made me, would, would make an audience member feel the warmth for her that I do. Um, I think just that whole period of life, there's, there's more that I could have done. Like, I think that I, I, one thing that I kept, which I maybe would have, taken more time with in the beginning was just sort of like laying the land of where we were living um and just the fact that like not only like not only were we like was I the only Jew in school but like we had moved from a college town to um a town of a couple thousand people um and just uh in some ways it, it was like a totally different world and um, you know, I was around an age where just, it was like, I was just very, very impressionable. And my, I think my mom kind of realized that this was like a big, big switch. And so I think that there, I could have done, I, there could have been more, um, there's a lot more, more to the story in terms of just how she handled, uh, that change for us. But I think, I feel good about what I was able to accomplish in this particular story. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. I, I have a follow-up question. Okay. Which um, you have mentioned that in some ways it was hard for you because there were 
maybe moments where you felt like it wasn't your story. Like mm. you were trying to, re- you were maybe revealing something about your mother and your relationship that felt like maybe maybe wasn't public or maybe would make mm-hmm. her feel um, a certain way that was different than how you felt. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, now that you've done that and kind of broken down that wall a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that the next time you tell a story, it will be easier for you to be a little bit more yes. open, yes. <laughs> as it were? Yes. Yeah. Um, I... Yes, I think that I was talking to someone about it and I was just telling them, oh, I've written this thing and I added these parts and I'm worried about how my mom's going to feel about it. And they're like, well, why don't you have her read it? (laughs) And I I had this moment of like, oh, well, duh. Like, oh, yeah, okay. And, And even though I think that sometimes it just, it felt like a good test for me because it felt like if I, if I wanted to be like stand behind for me, if I wanted to stand behind the stuff I was writing, I felt like I should be able to like talk to her about it, especially because my whole story is about how I'm so close with my mom. And so if I was afraid, if I was too afraid to like talk to her about it when it really wasn't, it, I wasn't revealing anything that was so private. Um, Nothing salacious in no, the story, really. No, no. there's no. really, it's very, it's very, very subtle. She does so, very mom stuff. <laughs> she does like very that. mom stuff. Uh, but you know, <clears throat> Like, as a new storyteller, this was new for me. Like, it was new to, to actually kind of go beyond, like, what happens in the story and really talk about, like, what it's about. Like, what, it, what the story is actually about is, like, you know, my mom and I having a complicated relationship and being close but still being afraid to talk about things and approaching, approaching mother-daughter relationships in different ways, you know? So um, I think it made me realize that I think I've done a pretty good job of surrounding myself with people for the most part who like want to see me write or like want to like hear my stories. And so if I'm just upfront with them about what I'm writing about and I'm like, I'm careful, but also true, then I think that's like all you can do. I think, I think that's important. Um, I think it's very important to balance that and to really think about, In some ways, think about the politics of the story that you're trying to tell, the personal politics. Um, I I know that I personally have a tendency to disregard that a little bit more than I should, Mm. but it's always important to really consider the audience and the people who might actually be in the space listening. Um, And that can change based on where you are Mm -hmm. and where, where you think the story is going to be and where you think it's going to go, but... Ultimately, what we're trying to get at is coming to a version of truth that is authentic to us and nobody else. And so it's that a dance that can be kind of difficult. Yeah, right. I, have, I have a story about that. My first story that I told the second story has some pretty salacious stuff in it. And uh, it got sent out with uh, the first run of our book, Briefly Knocked Unconscious by Low Flying Duck. And Good plug. Yeah, thanks. Good plug. And... Uh, my boss at the time received a copy of the CD. Uh-oh. And so I had to be like, Jen, look, I know there's a lot of intense <laughs> stuff in here. I'm kind of embarrassed about it now. I was young. And she she laughed and we didn't talk about it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that that's the other thing, though, is that I, I don't think people should feel 
hindered in writing those things down. I think that part of what took me so long to write anything was because I felt like I had to resolve any kind of tensions oh, in closure, my life. Right? Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. oh, well, if I'm going to talk about this, then I should probably get in touch with this person and like do all of this stuff to make it so that everything is okay by the time my story comes out. And it's like, no, just write, just like write the fucking story. And then like, you know, do whatever diligence you feel is, is important to you. But I think After you get the artistic part down, just, yeah, you know. like write it, just write it. Right. And also li life and story are two different things. Yes. Um, yeah. the stories have to end. Um, you know, our, our stories have to end usually after 12 minutes. Because <laughs> people need to go home. Yeah, people point. need to go home and do stuff. Um, but obviously, some of the messier endings in our lives can't be neatly summarized in story form. It just doesn't work that way all of the time. And so yeah. it's a choice of how you... You have a choice and you have a, like a kind of you know, artistic responsibility to deal with that. And say, like, cool, how am I going to deal with this messy thing that I don't really understand right in the moment now? Right. This is well, a good point to mention that also the second story is not, it's not completely not, it's, 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 it's not like a documentary. It's more like creative nonfiction. Like we, we tell stories that are encapsulate emotional truth and more or less factual truth, but, but we're certainly not journalists. No, it, there's a lot of time compression. There's a lot of probably scenes that happened over a long span of span of time that might happen on the same day in a story, stuff like that. It's just another technique to make things more digestible for an audience. Uh, what were you going to say, Madeline? Oh, I was just going to say that mm -hmm. my, you know, my favorite stories have often been the ones where you can sense vulnerability in the mm -hmm. teller. Um, and, you know, I read uh, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, and she talks a lot about <laughs> like how, you know, we often think that vulnerability is, what will um, other people will see as weakness. Um, but mm -hmm. in actuality, m many people often see vulnerability as strength. And so... Mm -hmm. And it's disarming yeah. to other people too. Yeah, so of, yeah. the ability to be vulnerable in your story um, and share things that are, you know, tense or difficult and, um, you know, is, is also beneficial for other people. Great. So to get a little meta, how... Do you think, or has this story affect, do you think it will, or has this story affected your relationship with your mom? Yeah, it totally has. In terms of communication or, or anything else? It totally has. It's really funny because I think just like bringing it up and being, so so this this story originally, the very first, the, the way I started writing the story was because I wanted to write a story for a revolution that was about joy as a way of being revolutionary for mm -hmm. the revolutionary uh, revolution fundraiser, second story fundraiser. Yearly fundraiser. The yearly second fundraiser <laughs> usually happens in April. Uh, but the, the thing that I had said in our first curation meeting was that my mom always says that I didn't get funny until I got my first training bra. <laughs> and so something about like getting my first training bra made me like I got some kind of confidence that all of a sudden I could crack a joke and make her laugh. Mm. And I wrote the first draft of that and it just wasn't like coming across <laughs> like the, the instance where I said something funny that made my mom laugh was not something that would make other people laugh. But it sort of helped made me like dig into this. Like, how did this happen? And I, I remembered this whole thing with Jen and 
And so, you know, us talking about how, because when I told her, oh yeah, and that thing happened where she, you know, said that some, a boy saw it on my shirt and my mom was like, what? You know, she's like, I didn't know that happened. And so. Oh wait, that's why you were so <laughs> yeah. upset? Um, so yeah. And so then it was like, she's, she said that. And <clears throat> so it just, you know, she kept asking how the process was going, how writing was going. And so, you know, it's the funniest part is that even just like last week, she was like, I can't believe I'm at, she texted me and she's like, I can't believe I'm texting you this, but like, do you need any new bras because I'm at the store and they have them on sale? <laughs> and it was just this kind of thing where like before all of this, that may not have happened. Talking about that part yeah. of your body was kind <laughs> yeah. of off limits. But we had like talked yeah. about it so much that uh -huh. then it felt natural, you know, and yeah. just kind of, and I think talking about that time of life in a more like separated way instead of, um, you know, with my first story, it also takes place around, you know, 13-ish. And after I told it, she was there at that show too. She was really sad. And she just said, she just felt like she worried that they'd made a mistake by moving and that just something about that time, it was really hard for her to hear it. But I think keeping talking about it has made it feel more like, like story and not like something we're kind of like still holding on to. So I don't know. Yes, I'm closer with my There's mom. There's been a progression. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's been really, sides. it's been really helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, Nick, you got anything else? Okay. No, I, I think I'm good. All right. Well, great talking to you guys. Thanks for you too. Thank you. Up. Thanks. Yeah, awesome. Check the story out. This story was originally performed in its entirety at Pub 626. Madeline was directed by Jess Kadish. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.